You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, I just finished up a podcast with Jay, the co-founder of Say. Say is a layer one blockchain specialized for trading, optimizing every layer of the stack to offer the best infrastructure for trading apps of all types. I found Jay's story really interesting. He was working at Robinhood during the whole GameStop fiasco when they turned off sell orders, which directly helped underwater hedge funds who were short at the cost of their retail user base. Jay and his co-founders used this experience to energize building a trading protocol that would never allow such arbitrary decision-making. The Say story is pretty straightforward. The team built an L1 from the ground up to offer the best trading experience. They wanted to achieve fast finality so market makers and retail can take opposing actions such as hedging, high throughput as a natural goal of an exchange, and specialization as their core focus. The main ways they are achieving these goals is through frequent batch auctions to prevent front-running MEV so everyone gets the same trade price, twin turbo consensus so faster time to finality so no reorgs or issues, and parallelization for higher throughput. We even talked about rollups on ETH and if they could be competitive if they're not constricted to ETH's writing speed of 83 kilobytes a second and instead write to Eigendier or Celestia. See my recent episode with Eigen with TreeRam for context or my episode with Celestia. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, it's Tommy from Delphi Ventures. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have on the co-founder of Say, Jay. Jay, how's it going? Doing well, sir. How are you doing today? Good, good. It's uh, you know a normal day, and I know we were chatting pre-podcast about not recording with video because the conversations are a little bit deeper. I know you're a fan of that. Oh yeah, man. I love just walking around when I'm having conversations. Um, so I mean, my back- background before this, like I used to work in person, right? And um, that time we would have walking one-on-ones around the office. Um, our office used to be in Menlo Park, so it just that's something I really missed about um, pre-COVID times because right now our entire team is remote. So we can't really even um, go on walking one-on-ones anymore. I miss that, man. Just I, I romanticize the idea of an in-person uh, VC office just so we could all work. But it's just it's really hard to convince people to do that in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, definitely agreed. So uh, I guess it just has to be this way. Yeah, no, until we get to like VR and we don't feel the difference, I guess, between the real world and, <laughs> and that. Jay, tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I mean, you introduced me before, co-founder per se. Um, my story is that I grew up in the uh, San Francisco Bay area. Um, and growing up in Silicon Valley means you're just constantly surrounded by tech all the time, right? Like every single major company, especially like 15 years ago, everyone was just headquartered in the Bay. Um, so it's definitely had a pretty strong, I, I would say, impact on my life. Um, just surrounded by technology from a super early age. Um, I got into program pretty into programming pretty early as well as a result of that. Um, and I ended up meeting my co-founder in high school. So I did a ton of speech and debate in high school. Um, and yeah, I mean, Jeff also did speech and debate. So we ended up doing a practice debate against each other um, because we went to competing high schools. Um, our teams would sometimes meet up to just practice debate against one another. Um, so we met each other in sophomore year of high school and yeah, I mean, we stayed in touch ever since then. And I mean, after high school, I ended up going to UCLA to study computer science. Um, and yeah, I mean, yes, was fun. Uh, I ended up getting into crypto back in 2017. Uh, my roommate at the time, he was going through Binance Launchpad, uh, and we ended up working together on a couple of different projects. Um, and afterwards I joined Robinhood. So I spent almost four years at Robinhood. Um, I saw the company 10X and I was in engineering lead when the entire GameStop saga happened. Um, were you following along with the GameStop saga, Tommy? I honestly just remember like being in a Discord channel with like grown men screaming. Which <laughs> That's exactly right. That was, uh, that pretty much sums it up. Um, so, I mean, for, for listeners that don't remember too well, um, what happened is that there was this national movement happening where stocks like GameStop um, and AMC, they were basically just pumping to the moon. Um, and there were hedge funds that were shorting these stocks. And because the prices for these stocks were going up, um, the hedge funds were getting short squeezed. So it was this very true kind of Robin Hood moment in the sense of taking from the rich and giving to the poor. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, there was just an entire, entire national movement happening around this. People were really happy. And the primary place where they were trading for this was Robinhood, right? Um, and then just suddenly out of the blue, uh, January 2021, uh, Robinhood turned off buys for these particular stocks, which was, I mean, it, it made literally no sense at the time, right? And Robinhood did not give any justification for why they did that. It was just like one day people woke up, it's like, yeah, you're not allowed to trade these stocks. Um, and yeah, I mean, people were understandably extremely pissed. Um, and when Robin had made that decision, like, yeah, I mean, I was an engineering lead. A bunch of people reached out to me. Like some of my friends had open positions at the time. They're like, yo, man, what the hell is happening? Like they were not happy. Um, I had wait, colleagues that wait, I hadn't so chatted what did, with. What did people do with their open positions? If I had a hundred grand of GameStop, what was going on? Uh, you could only sell on Robinhood. So you'd either have to move it off of Robinhood or um, just uh, sell it. So, I mean, you could still buy on some other brokerages. Um, many broker brokerages at that time also turned off buys, um, but Robinhood turned it to be sell only. Yeah, that's, I mean, what percent of people are actually going to move their stocks off of one exchange to another? Like that process is so hard. Yeah, especially with like the time, like there, there's a, a timing element to this as well, right? Like, Getting an account approved on another brokerage, it would probably take you the better part of the day or, I mean, even multiple days. Um, so, yeah, I mean, people just, they could only sell on Robinhood. If they didn't have accounts on other brokerages, then they wouldn't be able to buy anything else. So it definitely, I mean, Robinhood was also the biggest place where they were buying these stocks, right? So it definitely just cut off that movement to a large extent at the time. So what happened? So like you fast forward a little bit. It's so like you're going through this kind of the drama, the frustration of, you know, people losing access to trade major stocks. And it honestly sounds like shady because like by disabling buys, you're helping the hedge funds who are short. Exactly. I mean, that is why people were <laughs> super, super pissed off about it because it led to a decrease in the price because there was just less buy pressure because Robinhood was where a lot of that buy pressure came from. Um, I mean, in retrospect, I think there are multiple things going on. Like at that time, Robinhood was actively trying to raise like $3 billion. They wanted to maintain their leverage against uh, the VCs that they were talking with. Um, they also didn't want to piss off regulators um, because these requirements around having this collateral stored with counterparties came from uh, regulators and they didn't want to be like, yeah, it's because of regulator X, Y, and Z uh, that we are turning off fives. So I think behind the scenes, there were a lot of things going on. But I mean, there was just a complete lack of transparency, right? So from the customer standpoint, Robinhood turned off buys. They didn't really tell me why. And a lot of people had like really aggressive options for positions open as well. And when there's this downward price movement, people just lose money. Um, so yeah, I mean, people were mad. Um, I was getting questions. My team was asking me questions as well, right? And I had literally nothing to be telling them. And I mean, yeah, candidly, that sucked. Like... That particular time was bad. It's super chaotic. It was not fun. And that ended up following me around for like, I mean, it's been a couple of years now and people still bring that up when I mentioned that I worked at Robinhood. Um, and when you put your reputation on the line to join a company like Robinhood, and it just is extremely shitty when it just follows you around like that. Um, yeah, I mean, so, the, how fast did you like, did you start out with doing some damage control with the people under you and around you? Or did you quickly figure out you know, hey, this is pretty messed up. You know, I'm actually going to be honest with these people and tell them like, you know, look, I had nothing to do with this. I just, I don't agree with it. Uh, I was definitely much more of the latter. Like, I, I didn't understand why Robin had turned off buys. It seemed to go against their mission. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was just pretty transparent with my friends. Like, I don't agree with this decision. Um, I was transparent with my team as well. And I think kind of a lot of people inside the company were. Um, but we had no decision-making power, right? It's basically like, two or three people at the very top were calling the shots. Did they ever get caught up with like a lawsuit with the, the short hedge funds or how did that actually end up panning out? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest public facing stuff that happened is that there was a congressional hearing where Vlad ended up speaking in front of, I mean, all of Congress before the IPO. Um, that hearing didn't really result in anything meaningful happening against Robinhood. Um, Robinhood proceeded to have a successful IPO. And at this point, I would say the biggest impact Robinhood, like, I mean, yeah, they, they got into multiple lawsuits that I think weren't too significant for their bottom line. Um, so the company is still um, doing well. But I think there was definitely quite a lot of reputational damage that they haven't really recovered from. And as a result, like their growth has slowed down. Um, and 
yeah, I mean, it does seem like the company would have been better off being at least more transparent around that process. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be an exchange for the masses, like you think that when they're making these decisions that they would just make decisions with values aligned with the community, right? Like that goes directly against... 100%. Yeah, and I mean, beyond just like the values piece of it, people lost money from that decision. So I think that there's a very, very tangible impact um, that led led to a pretty long-lasting effect on um, the perception that a lot of folks around America had a problem with it. There's probably so, like a coordination aspect of this too, right? Like for all of the people at Robin that have Robinhood accounts with, you know, a thousand dollars and a five thousand dollars, whatever, obviously that's up to a lot, but asking them all to organize in like a super timely manner to go against probably the larger funds who had more of an impact, I mean, that's really difficult to do. It's it's honestly kind of unsolvable unless you're in crypto. Yeah, exactly. And I mean that that's a conclusion that we came to as well, right? Like one of the friends that hit me up at the time was Jeff. And he was like, yo, man, hope things are going well. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, things are, things are going. Um, and then, I mean, a few months later, we ended up just chatting through what happened with Robinhood. Um, and the primary conclusion we came to was the same as yours, right? That the core issue here is that there's just a few people at the top on the shots. Everything's super okay. Um, and what we realized at the time is, okay, let's try building something that's decentralized that could potentially have helped solve these issues. So the kind of genesis for us um, was starting to build a decentralized exchange at the very start. Um, so this was back in 2021. We're like, okay, let's build a DEX. Um, so then we're like, okay, let's or let's explore the infrastructure that we could use to build an exchange like this. Um, and that's when we started looking into all the choices that are out there, right? Started looking into every layer one, every layer two, all the other infrastructure out there. Um, we ultimately realized that none of it would work. Um, none of it would scale, none of it would really uh, be ideal for what we were trying to build. Um, and that led to us deciding to build our own infrastructure instead. Um, and that has led to what is now SAY. So SAY is a general purpose L1 um, that is optimized for trading. It's pretty cool. I mean, I've met a lot of founders in the space, you know, years of being a VC prior to that research and stuff. And I feel like a lot of founders I meet are, I don't know how to put this the right way, like, pretty reactive in the sense of, you know, hey, there's an L1 out there, there's an L2, there's an app, you know, it's cool, but we could do it better. You're kind of coming to this with like a fundamental personal, like grievance against the way trading happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just going through the experience at Robin and myself, um, I definitely think that the current way that the financial system works is not how it's going to be working in the longer term. Um, There's just too many trusted parties that need to be involved in every step of the process. And I don't think that in the longer term, that that is how things will be. Um, I think the values of trustlessness specifically are extremely core to how people want to transact. Um, And I think that will be shaping the financial system um, in the future. Yeah, it's really cool. So let's start off with, you know, the specialization of say, right? Like what exactly is, or what exactly was the approach with building say? Did you say, you know, hey, we want to build on an existing L1 or an L2. Do we want to, you know, scrap everything and start from from scratch? And, you know, as a disclosure, we're an investor, you guys. So I, I have to come off a little dumb to, to walk people through this a bit, but would love to kind of hear the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, so from Sage's side, we have one core thesis, which is that the fundamental use case um, for blockchains is the exchange of digital assets. Every single successful application in crypto right now is a trading application. Uniswap, I mean, it's a spot spot exchange, so you can trade spot assets, right? Pretty simple. Um, If you look at OpenSea, it's an NFT marketplace, which is fundamentally just an exchange where you can trade different types of tokens. So that's also a trading app. If you look at Stepin, that is a game. But one of the core parts of Stepin is its in-game marketplace, right? where you can t- trade fungible and non-fungible tokens. So Stepin is also a trading application. Even MetaMask gets basically all of its demand from people that want to install MetaMask and then go and trade on-chain. So even if you put aside the swapping component of MetaMask, it's still indirectly a trading application. So every single application in crypto is essentially a trading application. Um, the question then becomes like, 
how do you help these trading applications grow bigger, right? Like, how do you help them scale? And that is kind of uh, the way that we think about this. Um, in terms of our personal story for how we decided to build a layer one pretty early on, um, we started looking into all the infrastructure we could use, right? Every layer one, every layer two, more hybrid ex- approaches. Um, and what we started seeing uh, was what we called internally as the exchange trilemma. So between decentralization, capital efficiency, and scalability, every exchange out there right now is only able to get two of the three. So, I mean, let's look at Binance, right? Binance gets capital efficiency and scalability, but it's a centralized exchange, so it does not get decentralization. Um, If you look at Uniswap v2, it gets decentralization and scalability, but not capital efficiency. It's extremely inefficient. And that's why um, Uniswap came up with Uniswap v3, which is capital efficient and has decentralization, but it's not very scalable. And we don't think the solution here is to keep iterating on exchange mechanisms, right? We don't think it's to go from Uniswap v2 to Uniswap v3 to Uniswap v4. Um, We think the solution here is to do a rewrite of the underlying infrastructure. And that's how innovation typically works. Um, There's this idea of application infrastructure cycles, which is that first, there's some infrastructure that gets created. Um, This then leads to new types of applications, right? Bunch of new apps, some of them find product market fit, others do not. For the ones that do find product market fit, they suddenly have a whole new host of requirements that they need. And there starts to be more specialized infrastructure getting created to support these applications. So it's a cycle, right? Um, We think the exact same thing will be happening with blockchains. So we started off general purpose with Ethereum. Um, This then led to the explosion of all the decentralized applications that we uh, use today. Uh, Most decentralized applications have no semblance of product market fit at all, especially once you take away the token-based incentives. Um, But exchanges have very, very clear product market fit. So I understand. Um, so that's why. No, that's mm-hmm. that's ahead. awesome. So I, I definitely understand the focus on the exchange of value, right? It's a proven market. It's something that's foundational in nature to you know every person, every app. The thing that I'm struggling with though, and you kind of got into this with the trade-off between capital efficiency and things like that, is I'm just like there's so many exchanges being built, right? There's so many DEXs, there's so many AMMs. A lot of them are messing around with capital efficiency or which L2 they're built on or you know, changes between what's off-chain or what's on-chain for speed and security and privacy and, you know, who's doing KYC and who isn't. It just seems like there are so many exchanges being built. And I know we're in the grow the pie phase, not really the PVP phase, but I can't help but think that we're not going to have hundreds of exchanges, you know, over the long term. Like in the traditional finance, sure, we have countries per exchanges, but or exchanges in every country, but this is global, right? Like we don't need that. So you know, how do you feel that you guys are making the right choices to make sure that you are one of those foundational exchanges? Yeah. So, I mean, in general with exchanges, we think that exchanges are winner-take-most markets, where there will be a small number of exchanges that make up most of the user activity and that make up most of the volume. Um, and I mean, the way that we're thinking about it is we want to build the best possible infrastructure to support uh, these big exchanges five years from now, right? Like what we're seeing right now is exchanges are critical and there's growing tailwinds for more and more demand to do things on chain, like more and more DEX demand. Um, Because first of all, like, I mean, with what's happened in the past year, there's going to be significantly more regulation um, that is being imposed on centralized exchanges and centralized entities, right? Which is going to push some of the trading demand to start happening on chain. Um, In addition, there's just more demand and more use cases for tokenized assets, which is leading to more demand for 24-7 trading, which is going to lead to more on-chain trading activity. And there's also, I mean, the core values of trustless list. I think there's going to be just more of a migration to things happening on-chain to begin with. So there's certainly more demand for things to be happening on-chain as well. Um, and as a result, we think that there's very clearly um, more demand for exchanges going forward. So then the question just becomes like, What is stopping exchanges from getting bigger right now? And we think the exchange trilemma is the core problem over here. 
So how are we solving the exchange trilemma? Well, we started looking at all of the approaches that other chains have taken to build infrastructure. Um, we looked at like Solana, Aptos, we near Avalanche, like every major L1. And it became clear that there were some things that were missing, right? There were some issues with um, what was currently on the market. And that leads to inefficient um, experiences for people that are building exchanges. Um, specifically, the things that are really important for exchanges are time to finality. So basically how quickly transactions are finalized and what the user perceived latency is. Um, the second is throughput. Um, you need to support a lot of transactions happening on on-chain uh, for that ecosystem to be a good place for this next set of exchanges to get built. Um, and there also needs to be specialization to help improve user experience to better support exchanges. And that's ultimately what we used to, like that, that was the kind of inspiration for all the different verticals of things um, that say currently supports. So for more of the technical side, I would say that there Three major improvements that they had. Um, first of all, is twin turbo consensus. So twin turbo consensus is single spot finality. So all the validators vote and then the block gets added to the blockchain and then it's finalized. And we're able to get consensus. We're able, like the time to finality in say's public testnet right now is 450 milliseconds. This is a magnitude faster than basically every other chain out there right now. Like in Solana's case, for example, they might have a 600 millisecond block time, but it doesn't get finalized until more blocks are added. And as a result, it has multi-spot finality and it ends up taking, let's say, three to 10 seconds for that block to get finalized. Um, the reason that time to finality is particularly important for exchanges is because it really impacts the end user experience. Um, so let's say that you have multi-spot finality where like with Ethereum, for example, block gets added, and then afterwards it could get reorganized. Right? And let's say that there's a market maker that wants to open a position on-chain and then wants to hedge it off-chain. Well, how would they do that? One way for them to do that is as soon as that block is added, they could hedge their position on Binance. So they buy one ETH on-chain, and then they just short it on Binance. Now, if this happens before that block is finalized, there's a chance that it could, it could get reorged. Right? And if it gets reorged, then there's no guarantee that that same trade would get filled at the same price um, in any time in the near future. So then that market maker is just left holding this position off-chain. And this is money that they are losing through just holding one side of that position. Um, and then the result of this is that they will then offer um, wider spreads to users to account for this risk, which is going to lead to a worse user experience, right? And in other chains like Solana, for example, almost 5% of blocks are reorged. So it's not like a very rare problem. It's like fairly common on ecosystems that have multi-slot finality. Um, the other approach is to wait for a block to be finalized. And then afterwards, the market maker, you will hedge that position off-chain, right? Now, the downside with this approach is that let's say it takes 10 seconds for that block to be finalized. Um, in Ethereum's case, it's significantly longer for it to actually be finalized. I think it's closer to 60 to 72 seconds. Um, but if you have to wait that long, then there will be price movement that happens in those... 10 seconds. And this price movement is just risk that you as a market maker are eating. Um, and the result of this is you'll just quote wider spreads and then degraded user experience, right? So lower time to finality is critical for exchanges and say offers the fastest time to finality out there. Jay, before we move on to the other like tech improvements you're making, let's stay on this for a little bit because um, it might be new to people. So you're reducing the time to finality from like 60 seconds on ETH, like six, I guess six blocks, right? Are we still doing blocks? <laughs> um, down to 450 milliseconds. That's also faster than Solana. You mentioned that reorgs are an issue in hedging. Do you, like, is this the largest pain point for market makers? So market makers have most of the liquidity. They're all on Binance. They're all on centralized exchanges. Like when you talk to market makers, are they going to come to say in size because of this solution? Uh, this is an improvement for market makers. Um, the core reason that market, market makers will come on-chain is because there's normal users that are trading on-chain. Like retail activity is what draws market makers on. And that's how we've designed basically every single um, aspect of say. Like if you optimize the retail user experience and you have killer apps that get built on say, 
Um, that is what will draw in market makers. Like just building good infrastructure for market makers is nice, but that's not what's going to organically lead them coming into an ecosystem. Got it. So you want to focus on attracting retail volumes, but while building the tech that will support market makers moving from centralized exchanges to decentralized exchanges. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Please, please keep going with the, the tech improvements. Yeah. Um, the second thing that we support uh, is greater throughput. So CA has um, parallelization that it supports, and this helps it get up to 20,000 orders per second uh, that can be processed, right? So this is roughly a magnitude better than most other high-performance ecosystems, which typically get to between one to 3,000 orders that they can process every second. Um, and so the third thing that they supports is a native matching engine. So this is a primitive that's built into the chain itself. And if you want to build an order book-based exchange, you can just make use of this primitive. And the matching engine will help with order placement, order matching, order um, settlement. And the way that the thing that's interesting about it is that rather than processing every single order sequentially, um, it's able to aggregate every order, every market order and block together. And it's able to execute all of those at the same price. And what this means for users is that first of all, um, there's price fairness within a block. So no, no users are going to be getting different prices for the same market order um, within a block. And this also helps prevent front running. So for any listeners that aren't super familiar with front running, um, front running is a practice that is illegal in traditional American financial markets. And the way it works is a sophisticated party will see someone submitting in order to buy something or sell something, and then they will profit off of that information. One way that they would do that on-chain would be a user submits, uh, they want to buy um, one Ether for, let's say they want to buy it for $1,500 and they're willing to accept up to 1% slippage. And what that sophisticated user could do, um, they could just buy Ether at $1,500 at the market price. They could buy all the Ether at that price um, and then they could end up putting a limit order to sell it at 1% greater price, so $1,515. Um, and then that retail user would purchase it for $1,515. So the end impact of that is that that sophisticated player made a riskless 1% profit at the expense of that user, right? And that's extremely predatory. It's really, really bad, which is why it's outlawed in traditional financial markets. Um, On-chain, it's difficult to prevent against that. But with frequent batch auctions, which is what say's matching engine is using, um, you can help prevent against things like front running as well. So I would say those are the major improvements that we made. Um, and this is been helping out a lot of teams. Um, at this point, there are over 150 projects that are building um, on, say, ahead of the mainnet launch. That's really cool, Jay. I, I definitely want to double-click on the foundational aspect of the exchange before we go to the app side. But So th this is pretty cool. So as a recap, you guys have twin turbo consensus for fast finality. You have high throughput, 20,000 orders per second, and then you have batching for a much fairer experience to help curb or prevent front-running. This is helpful for cool. So it's helpful for retail, helpful for market makers, and these are the things that you want to win on. Before we move on, like let's just go through each one. Like, do you think that any exchange on an L two or an L one will ever be able to top the finality that you have the speed there? Like, who's in the running? So, Who are you worried about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the other approaches to building infrastructure would be either by building a rollup or by building some other type of layer one. So, I mean, we could just go through the pros and cons of both of those. Um, with regards to rollups, the main downside for rollups is that they just cannot scale right now. And the biggest issue is that there's an upper bound on how much data that they can actually write to their base layer. Um, so let's say that you have a rollup on Ethereum L1, for example. Um, the way that things work is you have off-chain computation, and then every single transaction gets compressed uh, that happened on the rollup, and then it gets written to the underlying layer one. So every single byte of data costs 16 gas to write on Ethereum L1. And if you do the math, um, this would end up resulting in about 6,000 uh, GPS that could be supported um, if all of the block space on the L1 was used purely for um, rollup, the rollup to be doing uh, sending and receives of Ether, right? Um, however, the L1 itself will be in reality, like from a practical standpoint, there will be other stuff happening on the L1. 
there will be like Uniswap and OpenSea that's competing for block space, which is why if you look at current rollups on Ethereum, they're not getting anywhere close to 6,000 TPS. Most of them are getting like 20 to 30 TPS. Um, so that's with like Ethereum as it is right now. Um, protodating sharding and I mean, protodating sharding will just increase this to around 6.7k TPS. So it's not like significantly better. Um, dank sharding might help at least um, increase it 10x, but dank sharding realistically wouldn't be coming to Ethereum until, in my opinion, until at least 2025. Um, but maybe they're able to ship that faster. So that's why we shied away from the rollup approach, just because it doesn't, you can't really scale right now. Um, and then in terms of other layer ones, um, it kind of goes back to all the optimizations we talked about, like building on top of Solana or building on top of Ethereum, there's issues around the time to finality. Um, and we do think time to finality is critical for the end retail user experience. Um, and I mean, other chains, they just have issues around the amount of throughput that they can support and no like true general purpose chain right now has any of the specializations that we discussed before either. So um, th those were kind of how we, that's kind of how we approached this when we got started. Um, and yeah, I would say that uh, Jay, all three of the things that I mentioned I'm glad you do contribute to the end retail user experience. No, this is this is exactly what I'm looking for. Just to harp on this point for or linger here for a minute, I had um, Street Round for Eigenlayer on the pod uh, last podcast, definitely or two podcasts ago. Definitely recommend people check it out. But we talked a lot about that writing speed from rollups down to core ETH and how it's constricted at I think it was like 83 kilobytes a second and you know, improvements will double it. And Eigen's approach with their DA layer was to bring that up to something like 10 megabits a second. So you could have, you know, help fix that constriction of rollups writing to Ethereum and so they write to Eigen DA. Do you think that, you know, Celestia or Eigen DA is going to help rollups to a degree that becomes very competitive with, with say? Um, I mean, honestly, it could. Like, none of this is really battle tested at this point. None of it has really gotten any. I mean, it's option largely because it hasn't really launched yet. Um, from say standpoint, what our, our core mission is to build the best infrastructure for exchanges, right? So if building uh, using a modular stack enables that, that's something we are completely open to. Um, right now, in terms of building something that can actually get adoption and can solve user problems right away, um, we think layer one is a better approach. But in the future, we're not opposed to making use of more of a modular stack. That's really cool. Appreciate um, how open you are to thinking through it. Let's go on to the throughput aspect. Another you know key aspect of say you guys are offering twenty thousand orders per second. Again, kind of similar question. Is there anyone close to that? Uh, right now, yeah, no one, no one is close to that. Um, so most high performance blockchains right now they're seeing between one to three k GPS. Um, and in Say's case, we have this concept of order bundling. So one transaction, let's say a market maker or some active user um, is trading on-chain uh, and they want to update 50 separate markets, um, they could just submit one transaction uh, that contains all those 50 orders and pay gas costs for that one transaction. And through this approach, um, sophisticated players or active traders will be able to get in more transactions, more orders, um, and help improve the amount of liquidity that they're able to offer. Um, and this helps they get to 20,000 orders per second. Um, in the future, like horizontal scaling of every blockchain, I think is going to be interesting. Um, specifically, I think an approach involving intra-validator sharding, where if you have some kind of parallelizable workload, then having each validator be composed of multiple machines, um, and then having each of those machines handle some part of state and some part of compute, um, that becomes a pretty interesting way to start horizontally scaling these chains. Uh, that is really cool. And I, I guess the last aspect here of the three like main points you're targeting, finality throughput, is, is the UI side, right? This one, I think we could spend you know, maybe a bit more time on. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on you know, how you achieve the muscle memory for you know, consumers and market makers long term, right? Like when I turn on my Chrome, like I'm on Uniswap, right? Or I'm on Coinbase or Kraken or something. Like how, how do you kind of achieve that level of buy-in or muscle memory for, for mass retail? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one common misconception that's out there is that Say is building a DEX. Um, Say is not building a DEX. Say is not a DEX. We are a general purpose layer one. And I guess your particular point, um, we don't need to compete against Uniswap or I guess any other exchange. Um, instead, 
we will enable Uniswap to compete against Binance in Coinbase, right? So say is a general purpose chain, and we're focused on building the best ex- the best infrastructure for these decentralized exchanges um, to come and build on. And that's why at this point, like we've also seen Sushi launching an instance on Se, and they're going to be building perps on Se. And the primary reason for that is because building on Se will give you the scalable infrastructure you need to compete against the likes of Binance moving forward. Nice. That's, that's definitely a fair answer. I'd love to kind of think through this now. So like we have the benefits, we have like what you want to build from the ground up. Let's talk through some trade-offs, right? Like what do you think are the, you know, the trade-offs that you're, that you've made that you're okay with? What are trade-offs that you've made that, you know, you don't think are really solvable in the shorter long term? Walk us through kind of the other side of the coin. Yeah. So I would say that from the technical side, um, the biggest trade-off we made is using single slot finality. So, I mean, before I was talking about how like single slot finality and having this 450 millisecond time to finality leads to a vastly improved user experience. Um, the downside with single slot finality is you need every single um, validator or you, you basically need validators to all communicate with each other before a block is considered finalized, right? So you need two thirds of voting power to agree on a block before that block is finalized. Um, what this means is that you, I mean, the with twin turbo consensus, um, there's n squared communication overhead. So every validator needs to communicate with every single other validator, which is going to keep the size of the validator's net set at least in the short term, um, smaller than you would see on chains like Ethereum. Um, I, and I would say that's the biggest trade-off in terms of how to change that in the future. I mean, we certainly have ideas for how that can be improved. Um, one piece of that would be by having committees similar to what you're having with Ethereum right now where you have multiple committees, each committee comes up with a vote, and then that vote is what ends up being um, uh, used to actually achieve consensus. So you can support a much larger validator set with that approach. Um, another thing that we're thinking about from more decreasing the time to finality perspective is rather than having two rounds of voting, what if you optimistically have one round of voting? Um, because right now, Twin Turbo Consensus has two rounds of voting, um, but there's papers out there that basically say, if you have six seventh consensus instead of two thirds consensus on the first round of voting, then it's safe to just move on to the next uh, block and only do one round of voting instead of two. So there's things that we're exploring for both how to decrease time to finality and also increase the number of validators that are supported um, that will help improve the kind of consensus algorithm going forward. That's really helpful, Jay. Thanks for sharing on the other side. So I might be a little rusty here, but my understanding of Solana was always that their nodes would grow in size and capacity and, you know, power until they basically take up data centers. I guess, like, in your knowledge, like, is that correct? And then two, if you're kind of targeting the same thing with a smaller validator set, like, why can't they match you on, you know, throughput, latency, speed, like, finality? Like, you know, if you're targeting, like, a smaller validator set, like, yeah, why can't they achieve something similar? I mean, in Solana's case, they're using a completely different consensus mechanism, right? Like, their proof of history with Tower BFT as multi-slot finality resulting in um, not getting consensus after each individual block. Um, that's also why they have around 5% of the blocks that are added to the network getting reorged. So I think it's just a fundamentally different approach to consensus, which is why like, even if they have a smaller validator set, it's not going to result in the same experience as someone is a chain that's using single-slot finality. Um, how, how more to make this deal is that, though? Like. It- you know, if you're a market maker, you have a massive transaction, you get reorged. Are you just leaving Solana? Like, what is your what is your recourse? Just lost money? Well, yeah, I mean, you account for this risk. Like, any risk that happens on chain as a market maker, you account for that by offering wider spreads. Like, that ends up being, like, the simplest way to account for this, um, which then results in a worse trading experience for users, right? So that's one of the reasons why spreads on chain haven't been as good as they are on centralized exchanges. Um, like there's just more risk that market makers need to account for, which is by trading experiences on chain, which has generally been uh, clunkier. And I mean, that, that's the exact thing that we're trying to solve. Right? Yeah, no, it is pretty cool. I, have you like how have conversations gone with like the largest market makers in the world? Right. Like, I mean, we don't really get a lot of that info like on Twitter. Like these are pretty powerful people with, with a lot of liquidity. Have they come in and voiced, you know, pros or cons or are interested in working with you? 
Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of market makers that have invested in Se. Um, and yeah, I mean, we also have a $150 million ecosystem or $120 million ecosystem in liquidity fund. So this is money that market makers and investors have committed to deploying to apps building on Se, both in the form of investments and in the form of on-chain liquidity. So yeah, I mean, this overall approach is definitely um, both better from a user experience standpoint, and it's also better from a market standpoint. And I think the core thing that market makers care about at the end of the day, um, and that sophisticated users care about, is just whether there's normal people that are coming and engaging in that ecosystem. Um, if you have normal people engaging in that ecosystem, then, I mean, everything else kind of just builds up around it, right? Like, you have institutions that want to come on, you have sophisticated users that want to come on, and that, that's the core problem to be solving for on chain. It's pretty cool. Walk us through the app side of it, right? So I'm trying to think through, like, you're building this whole L1 that's focused on creating the best trading experience, but you also mentioned that there's a lot of apps building on top of say like how exactly are they building on top like th there has to be some limit on how many apps can be built on say right like there's some upper bound somewhere here too yeah so one i guess i'll just start off by saying um one common misconception that people have is that say is a just truly a DeFi focused chain um we're not like trading is universal and trading is the most general purpose use case uh that is out there so Say is a is a chain that supports. I mean, basically every single type of application to get built, um, not just exchanges. In terms of the types of products that we're seeing right now, um, I mean, there's definitely DeFi applications, um, but there's also a lot of other types of applications. Um, from the NFT side, we have NFT marketplaces. We have NFT collections that are launching. Um, from the gaming side, we have a project called Fable that is building an esports league, which will allow different teams to compete against each other. Um, there's a project called Tommy, which is building a gaming publisher on-chain. And then there's a project called SenateDAO, which is building political tokens on-chain as well. So lots of different types of projects. Um, there's also roll-ups. Um, one of these would be Nitro, which is building a Solana VM-based roll-up um, on-chain as well. And uh, what was the second part of your question? I guess just like the upper bound of what you can support versus what you can't. Yeah, so... Say is a permissionless chain. Um, anyone can come and start building on Say. So there, I mean, from from that standpoint, there is no upper bound. Like anyone can come and build on Say. Um, I guess what you're getting at is more around like what happens when you have like one shared ecosystem that everyone is submitting transactions for, right? Like how do you exactly. prevent congestion? Yeah. So congestion is something we've definitely thought about. Um, I would say that in general, there's three types of congestion that end up happening. Um, the first type of congestion is purely invalid transactions, right? So people that are submitting just complete bogus transactions. Um, and a pretty straightforward way to prevent that is by adding in transaction fees. Um, if you have transaction fees, then long-term, type of uh, these types of invalid transactions are just economically pointless. So that generally prevents against that. Um, so say it has transaction fees, and once there starts to be congestion, then transaction fees increase, which will help solve that. Um, the second type of spam and congestion that you end up seeing is tied to MEV. Um, and this is definitely a pretty big problem on like Solana, for example, or um, before they added their localized fee markets. And the core issue over here is, let's say that there's an opportunity where only one person is able to win it. And it's a massive opportunity. Let's say like you win $10,000 if you're the first one to submit a transaction. And each transaction is super cheap to submit. Like it costs less than a penny to submit. Then in that case, it's very financially worthwhile for you to just submit as many transactions as you can in the hope that the person who wins that will end up being you because you submitted like 50% of the transactions um, that are trying to get a space in the block. So for MEV opportunities, specifically for things like NFT, mints, um, and liquidations, and ARBs, um, setting up NFT or setting up MEV auctions will help prevent that. So the overall approach that they're taking to MEV is we want to stop negative MEV, like front-running, um, which we're doing through frequent batch auctions. But then for things like NFT mints, liquidations, ARBs, MEV that is unavoidable, um, we want to set up auctions that people can bid on the right to be getting that opportunity. Um, and this sets up a much more fair ecosystem where 
you don't need to just be submitting a bunch of transactions. Um, you can just make one bid. If you win that bid, uh, then you'll be winning that option. And then the value of your bid will get redistributed to validators and delegators. So MEV auctions will help prevent the MEV spam. And then the third type of spam would more would be more um, legitimate spam, which is uh, like spam when there's actually like hundreds of different applications that are all getting genuine user activity that are all competing for the block space. Um, in that case, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, that would mean that they is like one of the most successful ecosystems out there because candidly, most ecosystems right now are not really running into any scalability concerns. They're running into issues with just lack of interest from people to use their infrastructure. Um, but in Say's case, one special thing that we offer is order bundling, which I was talking about before. So the core group that would be hurt if there's congestion, especially from a trading side, is market makers and sophisticated users that need to be submitting multiple transactions and constantly updating their positions. So for these types of users, they only need to submit one transaction. It'll contain all of their orders and they only need to pay gas fees for that one transaction. And with MEV auctions, they can also just um, bid to have their transaction included in the block. So through that, um, like there eventually will be a point where there starts to be competition for the block space. Um, and this order bundling approach will help um, market makers have the best experience over there as well. It's a great answer, Jay. And, and I want to just quickly shout out Ceteris and John at Delphi Research for helping me think through some of these more tactical questions. But getting back to your answer on the auction side, so you know, three main solutions you mentioned. The batch auctions help stop you know bad front running and spam. The liquidation auctions. I have a question on. Like, if you're about to get liquidated, these auctions have to happen pretty quickly, right? Is this are these mostly bots doing this, or are these people sitting around kind of bidding on you know, auctions to to include themselves in the transaction? Oh, yeah. So all of these MEV auctions would end up being bots that are um, trying to win these opportunities. So it would not be like users that are like starting transactions with their ledger to try to win um, one of these opportunities, like especially with the block time being 450 milliseconds. Um, and a lot of the spam that you would otherwise have from NFT, or from like an NFT mint or uh, an ARB or something would be people that are like bots that are submitting as many orders as they can. Um, this would still be like automated strategies. It would just be automated strategies that are now just submitting one transaction. And this would be like a bid to win the auction um, rather than submitting like 10,000 separate transactions, just all hitting the mempool at once. Can you, uh, can you share the benefit of having faster liquidations for those that might be unaware? A, a comparison to like DeFi summer or the last bull market would be helpful too. Um, yeah. So, I mean, overall, like time to finality, the lower it is, the better the user experience ends up being. Um, with liquidations, what ends up happening is Let's say that you put up collateral for some position. That position is now underwater, and you need to basically sell off that collateral to close off that position. So you want to sell it off as quickly as you can, because the more price movement there is, the more risk that that protocol is taking on. And basically, the the way that protocols help out with this is they have insurance funds that will be helping at least offset some of the losses that could be accrued from this. But the lower the time to finality is and the faster these liquidations happen, um, the better it is for the solvency of the protocol and the less risk it introduces to users who are using that protocol. So for basically everything um, in trading, like lower time to finality does end up leading to a better experience. Yeah, and the MEV side is, is super interesting. I think you mentioned that you're going to redistribute it a certain way, but I missed what you said. Could you walk us through like how you feel the MEV should be redistributed and to which parties? Because that seems like it's a pretty contentious debate in ETH. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I guess at a high level, um, we're going to be setting up these auctions and people will be able to bid to win these auctions, right? So there's this NFT mint on chain. There might be 100 different people that submit transactions. The economic value of that NFT mint, let's say it's $100. Um, the winning bid, if there's 100 different people in a competitive market, might end up being like $99.99. So the value of the bids will, as the number of searchers in that market increases, will start incrementally approaching the value of that opportunity, right? So whoever wins will pay $99.99. They win this $100 opportunity. So the searcher ends up winning, they end up making one cent from that 
um, opportunity, right? And then the value of this bid, one way to do it is you could just have the validator get all of it. Um, and then you would have to trust that the validator, I mean, I, I guess there's different approaches over here. Approach number one is the validator just gets to keep all of it, right? Because the validator is the one that helps this sophisticated player get um, this spot in the block. Therefore, the validator should keep all of that. Um, but that's not very fair because this is technically like everyone's protocol and everyone should be benefiting from these MEV bids that are happening. So another way is for the validators to start out of essentially the kindness of their heart and from more of a game theory standpoint, to start sharing this with people that are delegating to them, right? So if one validator is going to share 50% of their MEV proceeds with people that are delegating to them, and another validator is not going to share any of it, then people will start delegating more and more of their tokens to the validator that is sharing 50% of their profits. And because of this, from a game theory standpoint, like that validator will just become much, much larger. Um, they'll have much more voting power, and then they'll be able to provide, um, they'll be able to basically propose more blocks and then make more money from MEV. So it kind of becomes a cycle. And as a validator, you would want to basically stay competitive uh, by offering to give away more of your profits. Um, and the third approach would be just defining what the MEV redistribution should be at the chain level. And you can have different parties that are just entitled to be getting MEV. It could be the validator gets X percent, delegators get Y percent, maybe protocols building on top get Z percent. So this is something that governance can decide. And in Say's case, because we're building this completely new infrastructure, um, and we have, like, from a design standpoint, like, every single part of it can be optimized to build the best infrastructure for exchanges. Um, we think that approach number three where there is protocol-defined redistribution, um, that ends up being a much more interesting approach because it guarantees the delegators will be getting some portion of it without relying on the game theory aspect of having validators decide how much of the MEV to be redistributing to users. Damn, that's awesome to have off the top of your head. <laughs> I definitely agree that the cost of the auction should approach the cost of the profit of the opportunity. So, hey, I'm going to make a hundred bucks. It should cost me whatever, 99 bucks to get entry to it. Right. The, I guess the thing though that I'm wondering on is like, you didn't mention the user at all there. Like if I'm, if I'm an LP or trading or something on say, is there any redistribution to me? Like, I guess I can't get front run given the auctions, but so maybe there isn't really a need to account for the user insight or am I thinking about that the wrong way? Oh, yeah. So we want users to be getting as much of the MEV as they possibly can because they're the ones that are introducing this MEV. So the delegators piece that I was mentioning before would be those normal users, right? So with the proof of stake blockchain, um, with the delegated proof of stake blockchain, like say, um, most normal users will not be running their own validators. Um, instead, they'll be delegating their tokens and staking them with validators. So let's say that you're a normal user, you stake some tokens then you'd be entitled to get some portion of whatever that MEV that is generated is. So by having delegators receive MEV, um, it both helps normal users receive the proceeds from this MEV and also serves to align um, interests for users in the chain itself, right? Because this then provides incentive for people to be staking to help secure the chain, making it safer in the longer term. Sorry, Jay, no, that, that makes total sense on those delegating earning part of the fee. I meant more so for users trading um, on, say, on some venue. Like, if they get sandwich attack or something like that, like, is there an MEV flow that should go to them to make up for that? Or do you not have to worry about this at all because of the, the options? Yeah, so, I mean, at the chain level, like, we're just building general purpose infrastructure and we don't know, like, say as a layer one does not know all the different types of applications that are built on top, what kind of MEV opportunities there are for those applications and what the optimal way to redistribute that would be, right? So one way to approach that specific point that you're bringing up is by having projects receive some portion of the MEV. So it could be like for that specific project, that specific exchange um, where the user placed their trade, um, that exchange would get some of the MEV proceeds, and then that exchange could redistribute that to the users based off how much transaction activity they're responsible for. So from a chain level, it's difficult to do that, but if you give these proceeds to the project, then the projects could pretty easily um, give that to each of their users. That's pretty cool. I mean, it, I don't have the level of understanding you have, but it sounds like there's less of a concern, though, on redistributing MEV to the users, given the frequent batch auctions that you guys have. Because 
if everybody's getting the same clearing price, there's less risk of having MEV at all than having to redistribute it, right? Um, exactly. So for front running um, specifically, yeah, that would not be possible to do anymore. Um, but there's other types of MEV, like, I mean, things related to NFT mints or liquidations that just don't go away as a result of this. Um, ARBs as well, right? There's going to be different markets that are offering the same assets um, that'll be out of sync with each other. So with frequent batch auctions, that doesn't um, prevent ARBing across different markets. So there still will fundamentally be different ways to make money based off your ordering within a block. Um, so rather than just trying to completely stop MEV, for which there is no good solution that um, we've seen so far, um, it makes much more sense to at least stop the negative MEV through frequent batch auctions. And then for more of the neutral MEV, just redistribute that to users and have that be a way to um, encourage people to help secure the chain. Gee, why doesn't like Uniswap or SushiSwap, this is a dumb question, but whatever. Why don't they just use auctions? Like, why are, you know, why don't they use uniform clearing prices after some period? Like, what is the reason for them not to do this? Yeah, I mean, doing anything on like completely on chain with something like this is just incredibly difficult to do. Um, the mechanisms for how State is able to achieve frequent batch auctions is State combines every single order within the scope of a block and then executes them all at the end of the block. Right? But if you're building on top of Ethereum right now, you can't really do that at all. Like, As a smart contract on top of Ethereum, you're not able to aggregate every single order together within a block and then, own, and then execute them all at the same price at the end of the block. Um, there are different approaches that projects have come up with that rely on off-chain components. Um, but o- overall, we think the best approach is to be having all trading activity happening on chain um, because then there's significantly less centralization concerns. Nice. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, CowSwap is nice on ETH for this, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying on, on that side. Just switching gears a little bit, Jay, how do you guys handle native assets? Like, or am I going to be able to trade USDC, native ETH, native Bitcoin? Am I going to use a Thor chain or something like that? Like, how do you guys handle that side? Yeah, so from day one, say we'll have bridges between every major ecosystem setup. So folks will be able to bridge over from their ecosystem of choice, and then there will be different markets um, for each of those spot assets to be traded on, say. Pretty cool, because I mean, that's like what most people deal with, right? So they're probably going to want that from the uh, from the get-go. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, from more of the, say, infrastructure side, everything will be ready to go from day one. Um, so like different wallets, different um, bridges, like all the core infrastructure that people care about, um, that'll be there on day one. The, I think, most important part, like, I, I feel like a lot of people have this tendency to focus on, okay, let's... Like, if you have this infrastructure ready, then that will lead to activity. Um, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. Like, this infrastructure is just table stakes. Like, every ecosystem has its infrastructure. But that doesn't really lead to any, like, any ecosystem succeeding. The core thing that matters is getting good developers to come on to your ecosystem and then helping them succeed in that ecosystem by building killer applications. And it's the killer applications that will lead to actual people um, really caring about that ecosystem. Like the infrastructure being set up, I think is kind of on um, table stakes at this point. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree with that. The other side is just like the long-term vision for you guys on the decentralization aspect. Like, is there a route to being fully permissionless for validators? Is there a, a, a time when you think you'll be able to call it quits? Like what exactly does that path look like? Uh, I mean, so the chain is going to be fully permissionless from day one uh, for every aspect of it. Anyone can join as a validator permissionlessly if they get enough of a delegation. And uh, in terms of smart contracts, like those can be permissionlessly deployed as well. Um, and I mean, in terms of the kind of overall vision that you brought up, um, our vision, I mean, the, the value proposition that we offer to teams is extremely simple. Um, building a trading application on say will yield a better user experience than building that trading application in any other ecosystem. And five years from now, um, if say is successful, then building a decentralized application on say will be identical to building that decentralized application um, in a Web2 format, right? Because right now, building any kind of decentralized application is super clunky. Like it's slow. There's a lot of issues that come up. Um, the onboarding experience is difficult. And we think that a lot of that just ties into, especially for exchanges, ties into the core problem that we're trying to tackle. So, I mean, five years from now, success for us would mean that 
the DEX experience is as close to or identical to that of the centralized exchange experience as possible. That's an awesome goal. And Jay, one thing I just thought of, um, this doesn't include all of the ways that market makers make money, but is there a disincentive to being a market maker, I'd say, if there isn't MEV to capture? Or, yeah, I might be totally yeah, I mean, there, but yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the less, so frequent back auctions decreases the types of ARB that you can do. So it does, uh, I guess for specifically those types of ARBs, and also for front-running related MEV attacks, um, it would no longer be possible to do those. So it does decrease that value proposition to sophisticated players. Um, with that being said, like Kennedy, the primary thing that sophisticated traders care about is having normal users trading in that ecosystem, which is again why the way that, like the core thing that matters is building good infrastructure that leads to a good retail user experience because all the other market participants, they primarily just care about having good retail participants um, interacting on chain. Yeah, no, that is a, that is definitely a fair point. Um, Jay, I think I asked everything I had. I mean, what do you think like I'm missing from the critics' perspective? Like, What have you dealt with on Twitter or in forums or just internally, maybe your debates with Jeff that I didn't ask you? I, I mean, I asked you on trade-offs, but I have to be missing something. Mm, yeah, let me think. Um, I mean, it could be related to like technical work. It could be related to like biz dev work. It could be, you know, just getting out there. I mean, we're we're in a very like grow the pie situation. We're not really at PVP yet, so I don't know if your debate skills are, are you know, being fully flexed yet in the space. Maybe that's it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have too much else in my side right now. Um, I think one thing that would be probably important for listeners is how to get more engaged with say. Um, so. There's a few different ways to get involved with, say, moving forward. Um, if you're a founder, we're offering an entrepreneur investing program. So this would be um, you joining Say Labs and then Say Labs helping cover salary for um, several months to help you basically get off the ground and start operating something um, and basically getting assistance along every step of the process, right? So there's an ecosystem fund to help you raise money once you're ready. Uh, there's going to be ways to help out from more of a... Um, Go to market side as well. So every single part of the finance, of the founder journey is something um, that EIRs will be helped with. So that's a really straightforward way for folks to get um, more involved. Um, as I mentioned before, there's the ecosystem fund, which provides a ton of liquidity, a ton of investment money for any projects that start to build on say. Um, and then we're also going to be launching our first hackathon um, in a few weeks, and it's going to be focused on AI. And it offers a brand new design space um, for essentially creative user acquisition methods um, that haven't might not have been explored too deeply in Web three yet. So that'll be one of the things that are that folks can look forward to in the near future. That's pretty cool. And Jay, I guess one last spicy question we got on Twitter was that some people are wondering like how you guys are getting so many users on the projects building on say like like there's tens or hundreds of thousands of followers like. What is the the reason there? Is that like, are they real? Are they not real? Is it, you know, for an airdrop? Like, yeah. yeah what, what is the reasoning there? Yeah, it's definitely something that we have noticed as well. Um, so, I mean, for context for listeners, um, it's like after we announced our Series A, like we announced our Series A um, last month. After that, like every single social media channel that Say has and that applications on Say has, have, they just started getting a lot more followers. Um, like, a huge number of followers. And yeah, I'm, I'm assuming some portion of that is bots. Like I'm assuming after the Series A, there is just a lot more eyes on say and any projects building on say. So there is just normal engagement that happens as a result of that. Um, but the amount of kind of followers that have been happening is definitely quite large. Um, so from our standpoint, like, yeah, we understand this is a problem to some extent and we're doing everything we can to help prevent this. Um, on Twitter, it's a little bit more difficult, but on Discord, like just adding in more um, kind of verification practices before someone's allowed to join the server. Um, we're working with third parties as well. So for everything related to our incentivized testnet, we're working with the third party to help manage that process to make sure that no one can really abuse whatever has been built so far around like the incentivized testnet process. So we're doing everything we can to uh, make it more difficult for bots. Um, but I mean, 
at the end of the day, a lot of these things are permissionless and we're not really KYCing anyone. So it's difficult to like completely solve the problem. Jay, I learned a, a lot over the course of an hour from you. I mean, I think it's really cool that you, I mean, I don't think the whole Robin Hood scenario is cool. I, I think it's honestly like super <laughs> frustrating and probably nerve wracking, but I do think it's really cool that, you know, you took something that you said you had to carry around that was negative and, you know, you went out there with your co-founders and you, you know, you actually did something about it, right? You created in not only an exchange protocol that is helping people to have full access to the things. So what happened to Robinhood could never happen again. And I think that's pretty cool and admirable. Um, we're, we're thrilled to be investors, man, and had a lot of fun on this. Awesome. Thank you for having me on, sir. And I guess one last thought for my side, for any listeners. Um, if you want to get more involved with Say, uh, just follow Say's Twitter handle. So S-E-I-N-E-T-W-O-R-K. Um, and you can follow um, the link tree, join the Discord, etc. from over there. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll definitely link to it in the show notes. Okay, thanks so much for uh, for coming up. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, sir. Yeah.